Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Mayburn, and today I'm joined by Paola Rivetti. Paola is assistant professor in politics and international relations in the School of Law and Government at Dublin City University in Ireland. She's written extensively on a range of factors across the Middle East, on popular protests, civil society, and Iran. And I'm looking forward to talking with, with Paola about the the complexity of her research and the myriad different themes that she's tackling. So, Paula, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Simon, for having me. It's a pleasure, Paula. I'm really looking forward to this. So, um, as, as always, can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in, in Middle East politics, please? Yeah, sure. So um, it's an important question, and actually, I have so many reasons why <laughs> I'm interested in uh, uh, the politics politics of the Middle East, and then more specifically in Iranian politics. Um, so it, it goes down very much to my own personal, um, you know, experiences and history. Um, so I graduated in political science and IR from the University of Turin in northern Italy, where. I am originally from, um, and part of the program was one module in that was called Institution and History of the Muslim World. So that would be, you know, what we offer in in Ireland, in my university, as politics of the Middle East. So I studied and, you know, I attended the module, I passed the exam, I found it very interesting, but definitely I was not, that was not my main interest, because I was very much interested in Italian uh, history right. and Italian politics. So, and that was probably 20, uh, 2003. So what happened the year after uh, was that I went to the Netherlands, to the University of Leiden as a, an exchange student. And back then in Leiden, there was the uh, ISIM, the Institute for the Study of Islam in the Modern World, was still up and running. I think the director was Asef Bayat. So definitely, you know, a, a place of excellence yeah. for the study of, uh, of Middle Eastern politics. And not only, so uh, was, you know, religious issues, religious issues, uh, Islam, and all sorts of other uh, you know, issues related to Middle East politics. So while I was a student in uh, in Leiden University, I remember I was studying for this very boring exam, which was <laughs> history of the European integration. So very, I found it very very boring. Um, so I used to go to the library of the of the of the institute for for studying, and you know, I just had all these books in front of me, you know, available on shelves, uh, and all these books were. Uh, focusing on Middle Eastern politics and other issues that I was familiar with because I did attend the module, you know, just one year, you know, a few months actually before. So that's how it all started, you know, with me being bored uh, with uh, um, um, the history of European integration and having the opportunity to read about other other issues, and uh, you know, back then the main one of the main uh, concerns and interests of the scholars of the Middle East was this uh, question of the compatibility between Islam and you know democracy, human rights, and I was influenced by that, of course. So I was interested. I thought that was interesting. Um, so uh, that's how Iran, um, uh, you know, became became interesting uh, to me because um, you know, in my mind, uh, 
in my very naive mind of the time, my younger self thought that the Iranian um, institutional system and Iranian politics was so exciting because you had these two elements of democracy and democratic institution and partly, you know, democratic uh, institutional practices on the one side, but also Islamism, which I perceived as the opposite of, of democracy back then. <laughs> right. You know, uh, both of them being present in, in Iranian politics. So that's how I got interested. And after I finished my uh, year as a university, as a uh, student, ex, uh, exchange student in London University and came back home in Turin, um, I decided to, um, you know, to, to look for um, a job um a job in the area of, you know, international politics and international relations. And I was lucky enough to get a job in Milan. And I was working in uh, uh, for an online magazine that focused on conflicts. Uh, the name, the title, the name of the uh, online magazine was Peace Reporter. It doesn't exist anymore today, but right, that okay. was also... Very, very important uh, experience for me because I could uh, have access to all sorts of, uh, you know, news agencies and news and, and you know, I could uh, strengthen and cultivate my interest in, uh, in, in Iranian politics. And then I decided to go for the first time in 2005 to Iran. And then I decided to write my MA dissertation on Iran. So that all, you know, that's how it started. It all started. Fantastic. Can I can I ask Paula just before we we delve into that that trip to Iran back in in 2005 why why politics broadly i mean you you said that you were interested in italian history and politics but but why did you decide that politics was the thing for you well i've always been i think quite i mean a political person and um uh, I've always been involved um, in different political initiatives and, you know, uh, uh, you know, university times and even during high school, uh, I was part of different student, you know, collectives and organizations. Um, so I, I, I was very political in that sense, but I was also very young and very naive. So I knew that politics was, uh, was something I was interested in. But I also um, I also took my university um, time and the opportunity I had to engage with um, you know scholarship and and you know whatever poli uh, um, political theory and philosophy and history and political science and support and so on as a sort of journey. Uh, to actually make my political analysis and therefore my political activism uh, more, how can I say, uh, refined, to refine it, making it more, um, more, um, yeah, stronger in, in, in a theoretical sense. Uh, so, for instance, one the reason why I went to the University of Leiden was that I wanted to write my MA dissertation, which is really a big deal in Italian universities. I wanted to write my dissertation about a Dutch historian, Awit Zinka, uh, who uh, 
who was a medievalist, but who also was part of the generation of historians who during the 20s, in the 1920s, were looking with horror, basically, to the rise of what they perceived to be as a mass society. So um, um, Nazism and fascism on the one side and on the other side, socialism. So they were this kind of elitist liberals. So they were really worried to see, you know, the rise of, uh, of this mass, this uneducated mass, poor masses, okay, that were taking the central stage of national politics back then. So that, although I've never been a liberal myself, but uh, that was important, that interest I had in, you know, how um, political and intellectual elites uh, may become, um, uh, you know, uh, elitist that may think that a return or a use or a um, yeah, a return of authoritarianism may actually be better than you know right. living in this mass society. For me, it was a way to um, you know to make my analysis stronger. Um, so I think I was drawn to the study of politics and the study of history, but also political theory, because I really had very urgent and personal questions I wanted to find you know an answer to. Sure, I, I can certainly understand those those desires, and I think that that's something that, that a number of us uh, can can relate to. Um, Paula, let let's go back to two thousand and five, if I may. So we're moving from Leiden to to Iran, jumping time and and space here. But uh, what are your reflections from that time? Because two thousand and five Iran is obviously very different to to the Iran that we're we're witnessing today. What what are your first Oh, I guess, what are your memories of that time and what were your first recollections of, of Iran when you got there? Well, you bring back, you know, actually very happy memories for me because Excellent. 2005 was, um, you know, in a way it was, a, was a, a, I can't say rosy, but was a happier uh, you know, moments for um, for Iran in in a very broad sense than, for instance, today, and was also very happy moment for me because I was, uh, you know, that I. I I, w- I wanted so much to see Iran. I wanted so much to go to Iran that for me was really, uh, you know, was really a turning point. Uh, of course, I was very naive. Of course, there was a, uh, you know, there was a degree of Orientalism as well and, uh, you know, exotic fascination uh, for Iran that, that I had definitely. And that I have to be honest, went away with uh, you know with with going back and forth to Iran. So it's, I remember in 20, in 2005 I was totally fascinated. I I spent two months in Iran. And I came back and I remember I was, you know, uh, telling about Iran to my parents and my family. And, you know, I was totally enthusiastic and uh, I was overwhelmed basically by, you know, by everything, by, um, you know, by, by, by the places, by the people, people's attitude, toward, very kind attitude towards me. So I was really overwhelmed. But, you know, I, I went back on an yearly basis also because I, I started my PhD, which also was on was on Iran, so I was going back and forth, and I have to say I. 
you know, I, I didn't lose uh, enthusiasm, but I definitely lost that uh, sense of being overwhelmed. Okay, so I, I definitely acquired, you know, critical distance. I definitely acquired a more, uh, you know, a more self-aware perspective yeah. on, um, you know, on the place. Um, but in 2005, yeah, it, it was a very, it was a very, what was very easy. What I remember is that it was extremely easy to connect with people. Um, I was a, a master student uh, from an unknown university in, in Italy, which is a country that is well known for all you know other reasons, uh, going from you know ancient history to food. Um, so I, I, what I'm trying to say is that I didn't I didn't have the backup of you know a big university, the name of a big university, or you know anything like that. But people were very happy to to meet me and connect with me. I could um, um, I remember I had interviews with um, uh, very well-known intellectuals and it was very easy. People were really, uh, you know, happy um, and available even, you know, even to somebody like myself. This has changed uh, during the years. What I have seen during the years is that I have become more, um, you know, more cautious, definitely. But also uh, people have become, I think, more cautious. And it's, uh, um, you know, it, it has become more difficult to make contacts um, because of, you know, the broader securitization of research and, um, you know, the broader securitization of the public sphere, I would say, in, in Iran. Sure, and that, that's something that, that you've touched on, the, the securitization of research and the, the challenges of, of doing research in Iran. And I'd like to get to that in a minute, if I may, Paola. Sure. Um, the, the PhD then, just tell us briefly what, what that was and, and what you were trying to do with it, please. So what I was trying to do with my PhD, which I did in uh, the University of Siena, so again in Italy, in a way I'm really a product of the Italian higher education <laughs> system, uh, is despite the fact that I've been living and working in Ireland for, ten, for eight years now. So my, my PhD, so I have actually a PhD in social sciences and, um, and um, with, with a uh, on history. Uh, so what I was trying to do was to bring together on the one side an historical approach um, uh, with on the other side um, a, a strong theoretical framework that, that I was borrowing from political science and in particular uh, back then uh, what I uh, you know what, what, what I was interested in was the question of political change and how um, you know, authoritarian structures, uh, political structures, um, you know, democratize or at least, uh, you know, change in, in, a, in a democratic way. Uh, so I had a bit of difficulty in doing that, um, also because, because of, uh, you know, because of how, um, I mean, disciplinarily speaking, history and political science are conceived in, in Italy, so as to, I mean, although we talk a lot in Italy, but also elsewhere in the world, we talk a lot about multidisciplinarity and so forth and so on. In rea the reality is that disciplines are, you know, are really, uh, uh, are really divided, and that, you know, are, 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 we have very, very little cross fertilization in that sense. So uh, it wasn't easy. 
And I think my uh, MA dissertation was definitely, uh, you know, mirroring a lot of uh, limitation in, in, you know, uh, this kind of limitations in, in that sense. But it was, I mean, it was a first step, definitely. And uh, what I was really grateful, uh, what I, you know, I was really grateful for was uh, what happened after my PhD, because what happened after that was that, um, you know, I, did, I decided to stay in Italy and I actually wanted to stay in Italy, but, um, you know, the precarity uh, yeah. in, the, in the academic job market in, in Italy is really, I mean, it's quite brutal. So at a certain point, I realized that I had to, I had to leave. If I actually wanted to do this job, um, you know, I had to leave. And I was really lucky to get a, a postdoc fellow fellowship in, uh, in, in Dublin, in Dublin City University, my, my home university today. Uh, and that period, that period really gave me the opportunity to kind of reassess, you know, my thesis and um, rework through it and um, see what was, you know, what was good in that, what was, you know, very weak and, um, you know, not good. Uh, in the thesis and and you know elaborate and build on on what I did. Um, so I moved uh, away from this question of democratization, but I, I still uh, work and I'm still very interested in the question of political change, in the question of how um, yeah how um, uh, you know how agency and structure combine and you know, sometimes produce political change, sometimes produce, you know, political, um, uh, lack of political change. But that's the kind of question that stayed with me. And, um, you know, while in Dublin, I was able to rework and, um, you know, definitely strengthen my, my approach. That's really interesting to hear. And, and I, I really like this this core theme, I guess, if you will, of, of political change running across your, your work and looking across your publications and, and doing the preparation for this podcast, I can see that that's, the, I mean, that's the, the core thing, right? That's the thing that runs across, across the, the publications right the way back from, from 2012 and 2011. And this idea of trying to understand how change takes place and the, the political social structures that limit and curtail people's ability to facilitate change, be it through democratic processes or through political processes or or in, in more sort of activist terms. Yeah, definitely. I think I, I really I really have an obsession with it in a way, with you know, with I think all academics, you know, must or most part of academics do have an obsession with something. So I think that's my obsession. Um, <laughs> And um, this question of agency and structure, so this question of discipline and ability to subvert, you know, yeah. whatever it means, to subvert that discipline, as, as you said, is, is something that runs through all, all my publications and also those publications that do not focus on Iran. Um, I, 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 I have worked and researched and, you know, wrote about, um, you know, other topics, such as, for instance, the precarity in, uh, um, uh, in, in, academic labor market. Uh, and also I have 
um, you know, worked and um, not that not that extensively published, but I have published something on, uh, you know, issues related to refugees and, and international migration. And that has always been my, you know, my focus. So in a way, how do precarious researchers um, uh, in in my case in, in Italy, because I was working on, on that topic while I was myself a precarious researcher. Yeah. So how do they play with, um, you know, constraints, structural constraints, such as I don't, it can be, um, you know, a particularly conservative um, organizational culture, or it can be also constraints that relate to finance and economics. So, um, um, you know, financial constraints to, um, you know, the possibility of getting a job. So very material, uh, very material constraints. So how do they, how do they play around in a way uh, those constraints? How do they subvert those constraints? How do they uh, um, um, how do they curb, how do they, um, you know, how are, how are they able to have or, or build a room for negotiating uh, with those with those constraints? Um, and that has also been the, you know, my, my approach to um, the issue of, um, to refugees and, and, um, and migration. So, how do, for instance, refugees play around with uh, the very definition of what a refugee is? So, what with what what is called the script of refugeeness? Yeah. Uh, um, so, yeah. So that's definitely something I've tried to um, uh, you, you know to see. Uh, through different perspectives, from you know social movements in Iran to uh, precarious or the, organi the organizing of precarious researchers in Italy to you know uh, how refugee claim agency and so forth and so on. It's really interesting to hear you say that, and I, I'm going to apologize for this question now, but it's it's <laughs> it's something that's just been sort of coming out while listening to to you you talking, but. I wonder if you can just reflect a little bit, Paola, about the sort of the meta conclusions that you've got about agency and mobilization and protest and articulations of, of agency and identity across the Middle East, please. I mean, you've you've done it in Iran and Tunisia and and Egypt and Morocco and with the refugees. And what are the what are the key take home messages from these different cases? Well, I, I'm. I don't think I have very innovative or, you know, particularly, how can I say, intelligent meta-conclusions. Uh, but, um, uh, but what I have learned, uh, you know, very humbling, basically, uh, working on, on these issues and engaging with people who, um, you know, whose agency is really constrained by all sorts of, uh, you know, for all sorts of reasons, um, so definitely one conclusion, one meta conclusion, if you want, is that, um, you know, agency is definitely always uh, contextual. So there's no such a thing as, um, you know, a model or an a model of agency or, you know, a way agency should be that then we can trace or we can kind of try to, to see in every situation that very much depends on the context. And the second thing is that agency can take very unexpected uh, forms or expressions. Um, uh, this is something that, you know, I'm not, I'm not the first or the only one to say this, but 
um, um, silence can be a form of agency. Um, not engage, disengagement can be a form of agency. So there are all sorts of uh, uh, different, um, you know, strategies or tactics that people uh, use in order to negotiate with uh, with structures. Uh, sometimes these lead to, um, you know, to uh, big political changes sometimes it doesn't uh, again it depends on the on the context but definitely what what I've been trying to do in my work is to uh, track the if you want the micro my, um, the micro shifts in uh, you know in how people relate to structures of oppression or structures of discipline uh, and how, even if it's uh, you know it's uh, below the radar, um, even if it's uh, it's it's not visible, uh, you know how they work out, how they negotiate, okay, the, the their approach and their relationship to to such to those structures, and. Um, that has an impact. It might not have an impact in the in the shorter term. Um, you know, it, it doesn't. Most of the time, these micro shifts, of course, do not have an impact in the in the shorter in the short term. But they usually have one in the longer in the longer term. And this is very much what I've tried what I what I tried to do in um, you know in my book, which will be out um, should be out by the end of the by the end of the year, where I exactly tried to. Uh, uh, you know, to see what have been the consequences, unintended consequences of um, certain um, um, top-down reforms during um, the uh, late 2000, uh, sorry, late 90s and early 2000s in Iran, and how these reforms had a certain goal, which was the one of stimulating political participation through certain, you know, in, in, through certain specific channels, because the, the ultimate goal was to control such political participation, but how in reality people used that promotion of, polit of political participation to activate and being political in ways that the government, you know, mm. uh, didn't want. So uh, that's the type of, um, that's the type of, uh, you know, of, of micro shifts um, that I try to, to focus on. And the in the case of Iran and in the case of top-down refor reformism in Iran, um, you know that that was. I mean, that was uh, those micro shifts were really important because it's thanks to those micro shifts that something like the green movement ten years later uh, later could could uh, take shape. That's really really interesting, and I'm really very much looking forward to to reading the book when it comes out. Paolo, what's the title of it? What should we look out for? So the title will be Political Participation in Iran from Khatami to the Green Movement. Uh, so that's the title. Uh, as I said, it should be out uh, with Palgrave uh, by the end of the year. Fantastic. Uh, you know, we're still working on it, proofs and, you know, <laughs> yeah. those kind of things. But, uh, yeah, watch out for it. <laughs> we certainly will. And good luck with, with getting all of that done. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, can we just can you give us a little bit more on that then, Paola? I mean, you, you talk about these top-down reforms and the the unintended consequences. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about that and and perhaps give us an example or two as a teaser to get people excited about the book if they're not already, which they should be. 
<laughs> Thanks. Uh, so yeah, sure. So um, so the book focuses on well, my analysis focusing on focuses on the so-called reformist period. Um, so Simon, you also work on Iran, so uh, you're probably familiar with the with this. But um, between um, 1997 and 2005, we had this uh, the so-called reformist government led by Mohammad um, Khatami, who was uh, you know the president of the Republic, and who tried, along with the governments, with the parliament and, you know, a liberal, kind of liberal-oriented and reformist uh, political and, and uh, uh, cultural elite, tried to introduce in the, uh, in the country, um, uh, you know, liberal top-down reforms. So the, my book focuses on those reforms that, um, in particular, um, uh, deal with, have dealt with um, so-called civil society or the construction of civil society, which in terms of governmental policies uh, translated into, um, you know, the promotion of NGOs, uh, um, and what I do is to look at how this promotion of NGOs um, uh, created a space for people to activate in ways that the, the government couldn't uh, couldn't foresee. So mm -hmm. that were that were in this sense, um, you know, are in this sense unintended. So I talk about this. Uh, I, I call these um, unintended ways of being political. I call them surpluses of political participation because, in fact, we had a dynamic of um, exclusion of those groups or those ways of being political that were not wanted, if you want, by um, you know by the government. So what I argue is that all these um, kind of leftovers of uh, uh, of political participation, these surpluses of political participation, uh, were the background or where the, um, you know, where actually the people and the activist networks uh, that were really fundamental in mobilizing, uh, um, you know, in, in 2009. So the so-called Green Movement, that of yeah. course in itself is, is a very problematic name, is a problematic categorization. Uh, but what we usually call the Green Movement of Iran in 2009 uh, was um, uh, you know, was very much built on these uh, on these leftovers from the reformist period. So empirically speaking, um, I uh, have done. I mean, I have done a lot of. Uh, I mean, a lot of a lot of empirical work and fieldwork in Iran, and not only in Iran, because um, you know, as everybody working and as, as all researchers who work on Iran, I've had you know visa issues, so I wasn't yeah. given visa between 20, 20, uh, 2009 sorry and 2014 so that's 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 the period uh, when I started working with uh, Iranians outside of Iran and most of them were asylum seekers or refugees and this is also why I have you know I have engaged with the the, the topic in itself um, so I have done you know conducted a lot of uh, empirical research with them and trying to um, trying to understand uh, you know how more radical political um, sensibility and political demands form. So how did it happen in those spaces that uh, people at a certain point 
uh, or activists at a certain point became more radical and activated in ways that were not, um, you know, were not um, somewhat um, foreseen or wanted by the government itself. It's fascinating, and I love that uh, political surpluses idea. Really, really interesting. I think, Paola, what Thanks. we'll have to do is, is when the book's out, get you back on, and we'll go through it in detail. If you, if you fancy that, that'd be really interesting. That'd be my pleasure. Excellent. Well, we'll pencil that in when the book is out later this year or, or early next. Um, Paola, we've taken up a lot of your time, but if I may... Um, and I, I feel remiss because I've not mentioned the book that you did with Hendrik, so we can add that to the agenda for next time. But okay. you've, you've talked about some of the, the challenges of, of doing fieldwork in Iran with, with visas, and I certainly uh, empathise with you there. But I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about the, the methodological stuff that you've done, because you've done some really fascinating work on actually doing the research, reflecting on those methodological processes and, and doing work in, in authoritarian contexts. So can you just tell us a little bit about that and how you, you kept yourself safe and actually managed to do the work that you need to do in these challenging contexts, please? Yeah, sure. So it's it's a uh, you know it's something that you learn by doing. I think yeah. uh, it's something that you never stop learning. Um, so every time I go back to Iran, uh, there is a you know there is a at the same time new and old challenges that you know I have to deal with. Yeah. Sometimes they are new because the you know the international context changes. So as as I mentioned before, uh, you know, 20, 2005 was a was was a relaxed moment. People were happy to talk. Uh, while you know, uh, 2015, 2016, 2017, the the story was different. So it was much. People were much more cautious, and I was much more cautious myself because you learn things. Okay, so yeah. I would say the first thing, uh, the first element we have to, um, I mean, students who want to go to Iran for research have to uh, keep in mind is uh, you know this this shifts and changes in uh, international politics and how they reflect uh, how they reflect in terms of securitization but also in terms of uh, you know our access to uh, to the to, to, to people really on the ground um, the second important element I think um, and I've been writing about the, about it is uh, is your own positionality so I think that something that really, um, you know, was really an important lesson to me was that at a certain point I realized that I was part of the fieldwork. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> and quite an, you know, important element in the fieldwork. Okay. While you know, before um, I, I, I've always approached fieldwork as you know something that is you know the, the field is out there. I go there. I you know take information. And I work on that, on you know, on that information. Uh, so at a certain point, I realized that people reacted to my presence in you know specific ways, and that those reactions had a methodological um, relevance 
So depending on how people perceived me and reacted to my presence and my work, then, you know, uh, um, you know, my research, my findings did change. So I started, for instance, uh, reflecting on how um, the fact that I am a woman, the fact that I am a European citizen, uh, you know, bear, I mean, uh, finding uh, uh, relevance for, for my findings. So the fact that, for instance, that people might have, might think that I have, uh, you know, Islamophobic prejudices because I'm a European citizen. And yeah. I mean, m- you know, middle people living in Middle Eastern states do know that, you know, what Islamophobia in the West is. So that, that might have, um, you know, methodological importance because people were, um, you know, this is what I I understood and discovered, Uh, people were emphasizing um, secular beliefs or, you know, somewhat even anti-Islamic attitudes, okay? So what does this mean for for the research that we do? What does this mean for my findings? What does this mean for the representation that we, uh, you know, that we give in our work, that we give of, you know, Iranian population? So this has a lot to, this, this says a lot, I think, um, you know about um, about those studies that try that, for instance, claim that the Iranian population is the most secular in the in the region. That Iranians are mostly, you know, secular people or do not. Um, uh, how can I say? Do not easily buy into kind of more radical forms of Islamism. So this might have this might be you know uh, uh, this might be related to how people react to our presence as European researchers, of course. Uh, so and how they uh, you know um, um, how they um, shape. And how they change, in a way, um, you know, their their attitudes according to on the basis of our of our presence. Um, there is another. I mean, another. Um, how can I say? Maybe it's quite basic, but another uh, observation um, I you know wrote about in my work on on uh, on methodology and fieldwork. Um, is about the um, you know the, the the fact that field researchers in specifically in countries such as Iran or other places that really securitize research, uh, so field researchers really have to be ready to change. Um, uh, you know, strategy, research strategies, uh, precisely because one day you can, you know, on one day you can do something, but the following day that that thing might become might have become you know really dangerous or really problematic so there is a sort of uh, anxiety <laughs> if, if you want that we all live through while we do yeah. uh, field work in places like Iran or um, you know I, I, I only can imagine what doing field work today in Egypt uh, you know yeah. might mean uh, so there is a degree of anxiety we all have and I think it's 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 um, it's bad, but it's also good because it um, kind of stim- prompts us to to see you know where we have to change and to make us always ready for for these challenges. Yeah, I think that is absolutely central, and and I think it's really important the work that you've been doing, intellectually fascinating, but so very important for for people going out and doing field work in in the region to, to reflect on, on their positionality as well as all the other things that you've been 
so, so importantly flagging up. But Paolo, thank you so much for your time. We've taken up so much of it and I, I'm, I'm reluctant to take up any more, even though I have a long list of questions. But we'll save those for, for the return leg, if we may. Sure. Thank you for having me again. It's been a pleasure, Paolo. I've learned so much and I'm really looking forward to your book coming out in the, in the next couple of months. So thank you so much, Paolo. It's been an absolute pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you, Simon. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Until next time.